Chapter 23 Pent-Up Anger Early the next morning, the ag office was a beehive of activity. Quan and Eamon had taken it upon themselves to assemble Jack's spectrometer, as well as concoct the recipes for his custom reagents that would help in identifying whatever strain of virus Gomes ultimately cobbled together for Halvers. Jack still had the data he'd taken from Gomes' samples at Greenleaf. However, he had no clue as to whether it was the same stuff that Halvers infected his crop with. It could very well be an earlier version. The only way to know for sure was to test whatever Luke could find and bring it back. Without it, the roadmap to a vaccine would lead nowhere. The spectrometer was coming along. Rhodes had his team working overnight to either find parts or scavenge them from other devices. Jack had no clue how they'd been able to gather the parts list so quickly. However, with the president in your corner and a mandate to either bend or break rules to stop a potential catastrophe, he wasn't surprised. Quan was pulled off the equipment project, leaving Eamon to finish. He sat in Rhodes' office with Jack and the former Marine staring at the picture of Draper that Jack had drawn. This looks like a photograph, was all Quan could say initially. Jack let the compliment slide. So are you clear with what we need you to do? Jack asked Quan. Quan bit his fingernails and nodded. Yeah, but breaking into military databases could get me in trouble, he said. Rhodes looked at Jack as if to ask, Are you fucking kidding me? Jack shook his head and looked at Quan. Just stop it. For once, just quit being you. I know for a fact you've trolled the shit out of every military database in existence, so don't start with me now, Jack glowered. Quan shot a look of self-satisfaction. Yeah, I have. All I'm saying is that this isn't some backdoor operation. I'll be running this against every picture in the military archives. That's a big batch job. It'd be impossible to spin up the necessary compute clusters on the sly. I just don't see it happening without having real credentials, Quan said. Rhodes snapped his fingers and yelled to the kid with the horn-rimmed glasses through the door. Hey, you still have the exploit into the DOD's active directory? Rhodes asked. Yeah. What do you need? The kid replied. I need you to grab a set of ironclad creds that will allow him, he said, pointing to Quan, to run a big-ass query into active duty and archive military personnel records, Rhodes commanded. Quan looked over at Rhodes and his employee. If you've got access to their active directory, well, that makes life easy. We can be more discreet and use the credentials to find and download photos without using any of their compute resources. We'll be invisible as long as we tweak the firewalls. We can just run the comparisons in real time in our data center here as we download the photos, Quan said. The guy with the horn room glasses nodded approvingly. Well, all right then. Get to it, Rhodes said. Chaz and Luke woke up early, fueled the plane, and were wheels up by 6 a.m. Both were crossing their fingers the next site, around 200 miles from the previous one, would be it. If not, then they would be California-bound, staring down the barrel of an uncomfortably long flight. 
Luke stared at the GPS coordinates on Chaz's iPad that was suction cupped to the dash. Looks like we're getting close to the airport, he said. He saw Chaz wrinkle her face, glance at the screen, and then look down at the ground. Hmm, she muttered. What, hmm, Luke asked, craning his head around to try to see what she saw. She began her descent and closed in on the airstrip, but at 500 feet and 400 yards out, she could see her worst suspicions were correct. The runway was a mess, with large chunks missing from the pavement. It looked like a scene from Afghanistan. She began to pull up. That sucks, Luke said, looking down at the airfield. What now? Good question. The nearest airport is a hundred miles from here, and we don't have transportation waiting for us. It'll take time for us to get a rental car. I know for a fact Rhodes won't be able to get another truck over here in under three hours. Burning through so much time, we'll just be screwed if this plot isn't the right test facility, she said. Why don't we just do a flyover and see what we can see, Luke suggested. That might work, she said, as Luke fed GPS coordinates of Agrifuse's second facility into the navigation app. Within ten minutes, they made two passes over the facility, Luke staring out at the brown prairie land through high-powered binoculars. Want to take a look, he asked, handing the binoculars toward Chaz. I can take the controls for you, he said. She looked at him and frowned. You're a pilot, she asked in disbelief. Yeah, certified for multiprop. Getting jet certified as soon as I have time, he said with a grin. She grabbed the binoculars from him. Take the controls, she said as she looked out over the field. I didn't see anything, do you? Luke asked. No, I don't think this is it, she replied. Luke tapped the fuel indicator on the dash and quickly did the calculations in his head. We've got the fuel. Looks like we're off to California, he said. Chaz nodded and smiled as she resumed control of the plane and contacted the DFW tower to log in a change in flight plans. I hope you brought a bikini, Luke said, grinning from ear to ear. It'd be a shame to waste a California trip, don't you think? She cut her eyes at him seductively. As soon as we're done with this, I have no intention of wearing anything for a while, she said. Beth and Serena had previously sanitized the Atlanta condo days prior. Now all they had to do was dispose of Gomes's car, get to Southern California, and find the Agrifuse test facility. They wiped the BMW down, cleaned it, and left it in a Walmart parking lot on the way to the airport where the jet was fueled and the pilots ready to make the cross-country flight. As they settled into the Gulfstream 5, Beth viewed the opulent interior, its seating capacity for 15, as an excessive waste of fuel and resources just to shuttle two people across the country. She came from nothing and now worked for an organization funded by Excess. After 10 years of high-end jets, cars, hotels, and houses that most people would have been accustomed to luxury, but not her. She was practical and efficient, viewing waste of all types with disdain. Years of working for people who spent more on decorating a bathroom than most of the population lived on for a year hadn't changed that. 
It was also the biggest lie in her relationship with Jack, or rather her job. She had acted the part, abusing credit cards and focusing on the material. She was what every man hated but secretly wanted. The culture of excess had also become a small but increasingly nagging fissure between her and Draper. Draper wasn't just her employer, friend, and confidant. He was, in essence, her father, the one who had rescued her from Bosnia and horrific conditions that claimed the lives of her family. He had raised her as his own. Still, after all those years, she didn't share his obsession with wealth. And like most daughters, the complex relationship with father was strong, but not perfect. There was, however, a sense of momentary satisfaction, knowing Draper had most likely commandeered the jet from some corporate asshole. Just the thought of potentially ruining a weekend romp with a mistress or having to stoop so low as to fly a commercial gave her a small measure of satisfaction. She considered the depth and reach of her employer. Draper had created something few criminals could ever dare contemplate, and he didn't actually own anything. Being officially dead, he was invisible. He operated the organization as an invisible hand, unknown to anyone except his top 12 board members. He was similar to the CEO of any large corporation, known and revered by many, seen only by a select few. Draper had a fearsome reputation. However, between management skills and his ability to keep everyone's pocket lined and out of jail, he was invaluable, less feared and more revered these days. Although the jet was technically borrowed from one of their members, his ability to snap his fingers and have anything he needed at a moment's notice was still something to behold. Serena and Beth were the only passengers on the plane, with the exception of a pilot and an attendant. The attendant initially tried to engage them in small talk. Relieved two normal-looking women were in her care instead of the usual corporate assholes that were grabbing her ass and wanting blowjobs. However, she quickly abandoned any hope of female-to-female -female bonding during the trip when Beth gave her a look that could cut steel and asked for privacy during the duration of their ride. The attendant took a seat in the galley and wasn't seen for the rest of the trip. Serena was equally lost in thought. The benefit of old-school tradecraft, dead drops and anonymous payphones, was that it worked, and if used correctly, they were the best way to keep an operative's cover intact. The downside was limited real-time communication. Weeks could go by without contacting Rhodes. This was the first time Serena had been included in an operation, and she had no way to let Rhodes know what was happening. She was essentially on a high wire without a safety net. Her only consolation was for once that the Department of Agriculture and the organization were working toward the same end. At least that's what she assumed. After an hour in the air resting their eyes, Serena finally spoke. Why did you have to do that to the security guard, she asked. Beth looked at her with amusement. When you say, do that, do you mean kill him? Serena nodded. And you would have kept him alive, Beth asked, confused. 
Probably he didn't know anything, Serena said. Beth shook her head. He saw me, and he saw you. That's enough. Leaving witnesses isn't an option. We're part of something bigger here. She quickly pivoted. What did you do before Magnus found you? She asked. Serena sighed. You know, we've been through this before. I was with the Department of Agriculture, Serena replied. Right. Focused on compliance, blah, blah, blah. I know you said that. But before then, Beth asked. Serena paused to carefully unpack the story that she and Rhodes had created for her. I was a police officer in D.C., she said. Beth smiled. She already knew the answer, but she continually looked for inconsistencies with anyone's story. It was what she did. Explains a lot, Beth replied. What do you mean? Yeah, you've got an edge that didn't get sharpened by writing a desk at a government agency, Beth paused. Don't tell me sexual harassment or some other bullshit caused you to leave. How could you possibly know that, Serena asked. Well, for starters, no one beats the shit out of a security guard when they don't have to. A simple show of force, a gun to his head, or for that matter, letting me take care of things, would have worked. But you kicked his ass instead. Pin up anger, Beth said. What are you, my shrink now? Serena asked sarcastically. God, me? No, I am way too fucked up to pass judgment. I just see what I see, Beth replied. Serena let Beth's words hang. Like I said, I don't like cops, Serena sighed. Beth wove her fingers through Serena's, sharing an armrest. Well, we do have that in common, Beth said. <laughs>